achieve it. Uh, that wasn't, that wasn't <laughs> me, but Not another was, thing. It was good. Fun, good at many things. Putting the boot into someone when they're dying is. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I'd I prefer not to have got that reputation, but uh, yeah. Uh, tell me what you are. Questions. Well, probably not a bad time to introduce the show. Hello, everyone. What episode are we on? Episode 14? Yeah. Episode 14, After the Bell, uh, this week with Ollie Creasy, um, property analyst, and also, I think, the funniest man in the farm. Well, that's a, that's a heavy crown to be I mean, you ain't got much wear. competition, mate. Okay, fair honest. enough. Okay, that's good. <laughs> 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 Is it funny... Or funny to look at. I mean, that's the big well, question. I right? think you're very humorous. Oh, and I anyone that snakes that. that snakes peep show quotes into analyst notes <laughs> with the regularity that you do, you really. Uh, the, in the dark days of twenty, I, I looked forward to those. That was yeah. That was a highlight. I got a lot of feed. That was my most read note. I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which says a lot fantastic. about the quality of my output, doesn't it? How's um how's life in property land at the moment? Um. We're getting by. I think is uh, is as much as I can say to be completely honest. Property land is not th- well. It's not thriving. That's that's a fair comment. No. Um, you know, twenty twenty two was a pretty nasty year for for anyone in the sector, whether you were a REIT analyst or, or or owner or indeed a direct property owner. You know, values in commercial property fell about twenty twenty five percent, more or less across the board. Uh, you know, that's what rate rises did for the sector. Um, and there wasn't really anywhere to hide, and there still isn't really anywhere. Maybe we're done hiding because there's, the damage has been done, but there's there's not an awful lot of good news. No, to be completely honest. No, um, I mean totally anecdotal, but five properties have gone up for sale on my road in the last two weeks. Um, I think it's by lot sales, personally. Yeah, no, well, rental property sales, basically. When you take interest rates from naught to five and a half percent in the space of eighteen months, it's going to be damaging. I feel, I feel like we've had that sort of Mexican standoff period where there's no transactions and now now it's beginning to wash through. We're starting yeah. to see yeah, it yeah. wash through. Um, when you said dinner parties, what you do? Do people constantly ask you about house prices? Um, you know what's actually funny is no, they don't. Uh, it's um, <laughs> so you know I've got friends who are doctors and lawyers, and they're constantly getting asked, you know, does this look infected or, or whatever. Um, <laughs> well, I, I can just in between. Yeah, well, you don't, yeah, so, so yeah, you probably ask the lawyer. Oh, do you think I should get? You know, how should I divorce my wife? Whatever, whatever question <laughs> you ask the lawyer. Um, I can count on my thumbs the number of times people have come to me for property advice really? on my on my days off. Yeah, no, because because everyone in the UK is already an expert on housing. Yeah, property. everyone in the UK thinks they're an expert in property because we've been in a what thirty year bull market for property. You never get your house valued. When you do, it's inevitably usually gone up, and leverage amplifies the return. Yeah. So everyone absolutely. thinks they're a guru. Well, and, and you don't benchmark it against anything else, right? Uh, you, no. The average property investor says oh my house is up 10 percent this year no one no one asks well what would it be if you put it in the you know the, the FTSE 100 or, or other benchmarks are available um you know yeah. whatever whatever indice you might choose to invest in in the stock market or um you know what, what's the return on cash at the bank right now you know th- those questions don't feature as a as context it's no. just it's just a positive number and that's all you need to know which is possibly only half the story it, it is, it is. Um, let's jump into these charts that you yeah. sent us. Um, 
We usually like a little bit more positivity on the pod, Ollie. Uh, the I mean, most ominous graph in well, I Yeah, I mean, I try a, there's to a hint. So there's a question mark at the end of that title. Um, so. Ominous graph in property? <laughs> exactly. Um, no, look, I, th- I, I mean, I actually think, uh, I, okay, first of all, I'm a chart nerd for a start. So, yeah, but, but check. I do, Welcome. I, I do genuinely find this chart really interesting or and maybe a little ominous and, uh, and, and all of that because, you know, to, to, to speak... It, Let's talk through it for anyone who's who's not watching. Um, you know, it's it's comparing the the downturn we've got in property right now and property values versus what happened in two thousand seven, eight, nine, and, and also what actually happened in two thousand. Because it, it's worth noting that while you can also go through a downturn where property values only fall five percent, it still took you know three years for them to recover, which I think is is also somewhat interesting context. Um, but what we're really seeing right now is. Um, I don't know if, uh, if either of you guys are old enough to remember 2008, but September yeah, yeah. 2008 yeah, was when Lehman Brothers went bust. And we are effectively in late August 2008 again. You know, property prices have fallen 20%, um, albeit on a different trajectory. And now the big question is, where do they go from here? Because they could recover, they could stay flat, or, and they could also do a second leg down. It looks, I mean, not... The the blue line is very close to the we're, orange we're line. Right there, I mean, we? it's it lines up pretty pretty terrifyingly. When you say property here, is this all this commercial is UK or UK all commercial? Yeah. So no exactly. resi in here. No resi. Okay. No, because the resident residential property values have fallen three four percent something yeah. like that. Um, and actually, and that's from a peak probably beginning of this year or about mm. twelve months ago. Um, you know, we we are. It's been a very different story. Um, but I, I do think it's worth noting that you know, the, the debt market is not what it was in 2008 and, and the banking market is, is completely different. Yeah. So, you know, the, the phrase this time is different has probably ended more than one career, but it's not the same right now. So does that graph prove that we know what's going to happen next? It, it absolutely doesn't. Um, and there's certainly no guarantee that we'll follow the orange line down again. No. Just was, a, I mean, in two thousand eight, sort of my recollection of it was again it was, it start, was kicked off by higher rates, right? So central banks put rates up quite aggressively, two thousand six seven into the yeah. early stages of two thousand eight. Then we had a few banking ructions, Bear Stearns, and a few you know bits and bobs. And then it you know as you said, to September two thousand eight, when Lehman's went through, that was when it was a kind of bit of a game changer, wasn't it? And yeah. Banks were pulling plugs right, left, and centre. It was effectively impossible to borrow money for some mm. people. You know, the the, the refinancing that, that you would do on your mortgage actually was, was okay because the, you know, more or less the government had to step in on that sort of, sort of thing. But for someone owning a commercial property that they had 60% LTV, there wasn't a bank that would answer the door. Mm. You know, and would say, let's have another conversation about how we refinance this. Um, I'm not saying it would be easy to have that conversation today, but I think I think you'd be allowed in the building. Yeah. There's a lot less debt in the system today. Yeah, is that fair from both a yes, it is. listed yeah, yeah. real estate perspective, but also from you know from the banks as is well. That, is that because there's a tendency to fight the last war almost like? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Banks have three times got us three times as much capital as they had in two thousand eight prior to the financial crisis. Yeah, it's it's it's. I think that's a, a slight mischaracterization. I think you you know they're, they're fighting a good fight, but perhaps not they are focusing on, on only one of the issues at hand right so it would be it is correct to be keeping a, a, a solid balance sheet mm-hmm. and, and low debt levels that's very rarely a bad idea in property 
um, although there are outliers who, who, who think they can sort of chance their arm on it but um, it's not the wrong thing to have done but you're right it's not it's not the only um, the only problem that you have to face up to yeah okay um, the second chart I really like um, Alex if we're gonna have this one in please mate um, basically it all comes down to interest rates can you can you have a view on property yeah. that doesn't involve having a view on inflation slash interest rates yeah I mean look so if there's any economists watching this is not I know this is not a scientific graph um, you, you're, hang you're on not, the lines line up really well to, so that's always a good chart to do this but what, what I've done is taken um, the dates of this year when there was a GDP announcement or an inflation announcement or the Bank of England changed the base rates because on each of those dates or, or at least many of those days the the REIT market the property companies who are listed uh, on the stock exchange their share prices went haywire on a lot of those days um, sometimes up and sometimes down as you can see um, and for all the fact that those shares were indeed trading on every other day of the year or every other weekday of the year so far, um, they, you're right, they line up more or less perfectly. There's a bit of deviation in the, in the mean, but it's, it's the same journey, just yeah. with, a, with a few less turns and, uh, and directions. Well, there was a day a couple, wasn't it? The, not the inflation report we've had this morning, but the last inflation mm, report, yeah. the July one, and mm. everything ripped. Mm. Absolutely, yeah, you can see that. And if it had been beaten up yeah. year to day, it ripped even more. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, exactly. and. And it's you know it, it, it paints this picture that actually the property world is, is ruled by the macro right now. You know that, that doesn't matter who you are or what you do. Base rates define where what your property is worth and and, and where you're going in life. Is that to the extent where even if it's uh, I don't know a warehouse versus a shopping centre versus is it all trading quite homogeneously well, or is it? Is the differentiation? The short answer is is yeah. I mean, it's it, and that's what's actually making it quite a, a difficult market. There are there are deviations, there are winners and losers in relative terms, but actually the the trajectory and the direction of travel that a lot of the different sectors have been on is quite similar. Now, actually, one of the things where that isn't true is is the industrial market, which is probably the most unfairly hammered sector in the last twelve months or so. Um, you know, it, it, industrial it's, sort of factories and, and sheds. Uh, and theoretically, factories. Although I'm not sure how many of those we have these days in no, the UK. Well, now it's just it's, it's your uh, it's your Amazon parcel warehouse right. and, uh, and and every uh, every other retailer and uh, and everything that goes along with that. Um, you know, so the yields on that were pretty tight. You know, sub four percent going back eighteen months. And clearly, you should not be buying property today at a sub four percent yield when you. Your risk free is five, five and a bit, or yeah. whatever it is, right? Mm. So that that's fair. Um, what seems weird to me is that while those yields have moved out substantially, you know they are five and a half plus. Um, that's not in evidence in things like the London office market, for example, mm. um, uh, student accommodation as well, and actually probably the the wider residential market. Um, you know, you're you're working pretty hard to stand still if you're. Buying a property with a four and a half percent yield, mm. your debt is costing you six and a half percent, and you're hoping to make a positive return. Yeah. Um, Slim margins. Yeah, there, there's so there have been winners and losers, but but actually more recently there's been a lot of lockstep movement. Yeah, let's let's talk about the rates, the office rates, because um, we can't have you on and not talk about work from home. Um, <laughs> probably the UK's second favorite topic to talk about, apart from property prices. These are US office rates, uh, the big listed ones. Uh, the line at the top there that's in positive territory is for context, the S and P five hundred to so the broad US market. 
um, just so our American friends don't feel picked on. We've also got the UK here. Um, Derwent and Workspace. Um, yep. I don't know that those are two very different entities, yeah. Um, but yeah, still underwater so far year to date. Um, the the thing that's you know the bears I'll talk about is commercial real estate in the states, and if everyone's working from home, people won't need as much floor space, and that's going to mean that offices are. You know, f- uh, space in an office really is going to get really cheap and that's where the next problem is coming from yeah. what do you think well um, there's definitely a point to be made there right and I think um, first of all the US graph is, is an absolute bloodbath it was at least at one point an absolute bloodbath and there's oh, been, it's a, ugly there's as been a degree of recovery since um, I think there's a few things to say so y- you're right um it's hard to come up with a reason why you would need more. You know, the average company should not necessarily need more space today than it did four years ago. I mean, there's, that argument to me seems quite clear. What is less clear is um, whether that company really needs and can benefit from, from cutting the space um, or whether that turns out to be a bit self-defeating. You know, I think for all that we acknowledge that our building is sometimes half empty or, or not fully occupied, um, there's quite a big leap between say a, a, acknowledging that and then saying and yeah I'm willing to share a desk with you guys where I come in on a Monday and you have it on Tuesday and then mm. Jonathan sits in the same desk on a Wednesday you know we're not we're not hot punking on submarines here it's it's a bit it, it, do, it doesn't feel like um, the white collar professional is particularly ready to accept that across the board mm-hmm. um, so so does the company actually benefit from you know cutting the space by a third or a half? I, I'm not sure it necessarily does. And it's actually, as weird as this might sound, it's not a particularly big expense. So if you if you run a financial services company, yes, you're probably paying £70 a square foot for your office space in central London. Um, but and, and you know, this building that we're in is something like 200,000 square foot, so you know you can you can do the maths, but that's, it's not quite a rounding error, but it's a very small proportion of your overall expenses. You know, the, your, your wage bill to, to hire, you know, 20,000 people to sit in that space is probably, you wouldn't get 20,000 in, but you know, to, to hire 2,000 people to sit in that space will cost you as much, if not more. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's your, that's your context. Does the CFO save a lot of money cutting the, the space in half? Or does it just it's make an easy the one. business worse? Um, now the other thing I think you should also bear in mind is that the US market is a very different one to the UK. Um, mm-hmm. I think, so I, I did a little bit of research when I saw this graph and I've, I've been looking at US REITs recently as well. Um, so New York is a bit of an outlier in the US. It's the only city where the average commuter commutes by public transport. Right, so, yeah. so the major- so something like fifty five percent of Most New York drive. commuters, yeah. yeah, take take the the metro or, or whatever. Um, the, every other city, you're more likely to commute by car than by train or bus or, or whatever. Um, and so New York is one thing. Um, you go to Los Angeles or San Francisco or Boston or Chicago, and, and the car is king. And so suddenly. Um, actually the, 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 the topography of the city changes completely and, and you can see this quite clearly in San Francisco where the big tech firms don't tend to be headquartered in San Francisco no. or they're in Cupertino or <coughs> Mountain View or, 
Palato, yeah. um, Palo Alto, exactly. Um, and the reason being that actually, well, the, the city's a nice thing to have on your doorstep in some regard if you want to go to the opera or uh, the baseball, but actually spending every single day in the middle of the city is, is tiring and expensive and not always nice. No. Um, so telling someone actually, would you rather work in, in in downtown San Francisco or Cupertino? Well, it's it's a drive north or a drive south for me, so I'm ambivalent about the commute. But actually, the the, the air in Cupertino is probably nicer to breathe. So yeah, um, it, that's a net win for me. That's good. Yeah, um, do that exactly. I put it to you that the best thing that could happen to these for these office rates is a recession. Because a recession means that people are so in the off. I know we have, yeah. and and we keep coming back to the same things, but it's totally counterintuitive. But I'm sort of planting my flag. In a recession, people come in to the office, yeah, yeah. and that means demand for office space obviously goes up, mm. yeah. which would be weird. But weird stuff happens all the time. Right. You don't. Yeah. Perhaps it's yeah. GDP would be one way to measure it. You don't. You would benefit from some unemployment data that was perhaps a little less. Uh, robust is, is the word positive yeah, yeah. Robust well, one, yeah, right? yeah. Um, because you're right it's sort of it's paradoxical but you don't want to be invisible at that moment in time um, and actually it, the other weird thing to remark upon um, you know we had some I suppose you'd call it relatively good wage growth and GDP data in the last week or so in the UK mm-hmm. um, the the reach shares reacted pretty negatively despite historically having a positive correlation with both of those um, both of those measures because mm. um, the, I guess the, the argument is that it gives the Bank of England a bit more firepower yeah. and, and gunpowder. And yields have gone up a bit as well in the last week or so so that again undermines REITs and right. on that basis so you know, that's the sort of good news is bad news kind of right. thesis isn't it for the market. Probably, yeah I think bad news is also still bad, bad news. Bad news is still bad news. <laughs> there so are the times in the market where any news is yeah. bad news. Right. And we're just probably there's one of those now. We, we, we retrofit a narrative to justify whatever the, well, the, whatever the market's doing. Yeah I mean I, I think about coming to the op- back to the office when things get a bit hairy is probably right and um, and what story of the week, story of the month, story of the year is uh, Zoom getting their uh, employees back in the office two days a week and, and Amazon doing much the same so a lot of big companies are going down that route of getting employees back in the office there's, there's a real so. irony in Zoom oh it's incredible insisting it's just, on people I mean, being in the office you, you know they? laugh out loud kind of amusing story they're going to do some kind of AI pivot in the next <laughs> two weeks mark <laughs> my words the share price back up to where it was <laughs> um, yeah sorry John go ahead mate uh, I think I was probably finished there actually cool um, <laughs> last chart yeah, last chart, right? Because, excuse me, the, the the story here, right, is so for all that REITs have, um, have have been a little bit haywire and busy in terms of where the prices have gone. Um, actually, the underlying value of property has, as you can see in the first chart that that I showed you, it came down very sharply, and then it's just trod water. And and you can't that this graph doesn't show that particularly well. But what this graph does show is is how we got to the treading water phase, right? Um, the stat I like to repeat from this is this is 25, 23 years of monthly property moves. Yeah. Again, all UK commercial property. Um, and there's been three months in those 23 years where the price has moved more than 5% a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and two of them yeah, was Yeah, so one of them was October 2008 when Lehman Brothers went bust. Mm-hmm. And then the other two were Q4 last year. Um, 
Uh, and okay, so you could say, well, this trust maybe has uh, some responsibility for all of that. Um, but actually, what it what it boiled down to was that the the people in charge of valuing properties said we have got incontrovertible evidence that prices have to move. It's not it's not based on transactions because that takes six months to sort talk of percolate a, talk through. Talk a wee bit more about yeah, that process. process. So is a person with a clipboard who walks around an office and says, what's this for? <laughs> so, uh, and, and a tabard, normally, yeah. Um, no, I don't think that that happens in every single case. No. In fact, I know right. it doesn't happen in every single case. Um, you, but, but you do have to, whether you're a REIT or a property fund or, or indeed just a private owner of property, you, mm -hmm. you should, and in some cases have to, have your property periodically valued by a chartered surveyor. Right. Um, and you can pay pounds to have that person walk around the building with the clipboard or you can pay pennies to have them sit at their desk and uh, do it on street view or, mm -hmm. or whatever, which sometimes is, is enough as well. Mm -hmm. um, but what has changed, and, and historically, so for the sort of 22 of those 23 years, maybe 21 or something, um, the, the measure was, what's the most recent similar building that sold in, in, this, in this department? So right. if you own a build, uh, an office in the city, probably three doors down, something, it, it sold something six, else something else sold six yeah. months ago. And if it's half the size, okay, well, we can factor that in or, and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but what it means, of course, is that actually you, you agree a price on a property. Um, the transaction itself takes about six months to go through. Right? Yeah. And it's, not, it's, it's slower than your average residential conveyancing process, yeah. um, by which time the price is pretty stale. Uh, and so, and then it probably takes you another month or two to, to let it percolate into your indices and, uh, and, and factor in against future prices. Um, what's happened in the last, and I don't know exactly when it happened, but probably about 18 months or so ago, was the, the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors said, we're changing the methodology here. Um, we'll still keep an eye on transactions, of course, but um, it's effectively going to become a DCF model. Um, we're going to take a risk-free rate. We're going to look at the, the rental trajectory on this because we know what the lease looks like. We know what you know where the, the market rent that it's likely to revert to is, um, uh, and we can back out a, a, an approximate valuation of it. Um, Does that mean the property becomes an even more interest rate sensitive? Class. It, mm. it probably does. To his previous baseline. It probably does, and it, it. But it also means that you don't necessarily have to wait to to see mm. the evidence, see the writing on the wall before you yeah. act. Um, but it's also. I mean, it's it's got a few different quirks to it because what is also interesting is that it doesn't necessarily capture the value that the marginal buyer is willing to pay, right? And it could be completely wrong. Um, if you could say, look. My risk-free rate is now five and a half percent. Your property is worth X, but if a if a tycoon comes around the corner with a billion-dollar check, that number could be blown out of the water. You don't hear the word tycoon enough, do you? Yeah. I, I try and slip cigar in, in mouth. Yeah, right. the hat on. Yeah, because someone might say, right, well, that's cool that you're based on a discounted cash flow. You think that, but I want somewhere to put my money right. that is safe. Mm -hmm. in inverted commas mm. and they would be willing to pay a premium if it is you know mm. we've had a lot of overseas investment in the UK property market because the UK is a stable allegedly political political environment it, it, yeah it's it, and, and importantly it's also a market which has more or less never had any sort of asset seizure unless yeah. there's you know, a really good reason to do it right? 
the, 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 the that's what drives people. Fix cat, I suppose. Yeah, wait and see. Um, property, yeah. So talk about housing a little bit. We we talk a lot about UK housing, so I'm not necessarily going to grill you too much on that. Um, this stat caught my eye. There are six hundred thousand more realtors, as they call them, in America currently than there are homes for sale. I saw that. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Sorry, there's more. So there's realtors, more estate agents, more estate agents more, in the states. No volume, no supply, basically. Because mm, if you're locked into your mega long mortgage, you ain't gonna move. And the only, the only, the only, there's something weird going on with the house builder stocks in the states, isn't there? Because actually, well, Warren, they're at yeah. all time highs. Well, Warren Buffett has just bought in. So the disclosure from Berkshire Hathaway last night was that uh, uh, Berkshire disclosed bought six million shares in DR Horton, which is one of the biggest, worth seven hundred and twenty-six million dollars at the end of the second quarter. Um, and a load of shares in Lennar and NVR, whoever they are. So Warren Buffett thinks there's good news to be had in the US house building because, and we've come back to this, the US housing market, the mortgage market is such that you, you take out a 30-year fixed rate and what's the stat? 50% of US mortgages are below 4%. Well, if you've got a 4% mortgage, you're not going to move house to refinance itself. You're getting five you in your to, cash. You you're going to sit in your house. So therefore, if you're living somewhere, you're not likely to sell or put your house up for sale. So there's no stock of existing homes, therefore the only stock available are new homes coming onto the market by the home builders. So the home builders have basically got the market cornered and the volume of new homes is a much higher proportion of the overall sales market in the States now than it's been for years, which is why the, the stocks of the home builders, and we might have them, we might have a chart on the US home builders, but um, I've just got one here actually from the FT email this morning and they're all up somewhere between 40 and 80% year to date. DR Horton's the biggest, is that 40% year to date? Rates go from zero to five and house builders are trading at all time high valuations. Yeah, that bonkers. is absolutely mental. Yeah, but, but what, are they, what are they doing in 2022? That's the... Well, yeah, so they're coming off a really low base because... Um, are they at all time highs? Going, I, I don't know. Is, is uh, highs? Pass. But they, they, they got shredded at the start of the rate rising cycle. Yeah, understandable. Because um, so what, what, you're, what you're observing in, in the chart that Jonathan's referencing is not is not zero to five it's the expectation that the five to the reality of five yeah. is, is, is what's actually happened in the last nine months or so uh, mm. which is a slightly different a different perspective on it yeah um, uh, and I mean it's it's interesting because it's kind of the opposite of what you've got in the mm. UK right there's a uh, there's an incentive to to keep your home in the US uh, I, I suppose as long as it as long as wage growth and, uh, and employment stay robust right because that's that's what Just that's what's going to drive the fundamentals or, yeah. or, or forced sales um, whereas in in the UK it doesn't matter if you've got a job as I mean if, if you've got a job you, you've got a steady salary that's fine but what you borrowed two years ago is now going to cost you a lot more and you may not be able to afford mm. it or your renter mm. may not be able to afford it mm. um, Johnny Vanguard mind the gap survey um, it's just depressing. It, it's depressing and life affirming if you do our job, I think. Um, so this is kind of required reading, I think, every year. Um, it's a study of the average, basically the return that the average dollar invested in a whole bunch of funds earned. So the actual return that actual investors earned versus the total return of the fund. And the difference in those two figures is down to sales, mistiming, 
genuinely investor not behavior. sitting along for investor yeah. behavior basically so the average dollar invested in funds uh, earned a six percent annual return over the 10 years ended 31st of december 22 while the average fund gained about 7.7 percent per year over that same span for a gap of about 1.7 percent annually what this means is that investors missed out on about one-fifth of their funds fund investments average net returns a significant shortfall we sit in front of clients all day long and talk about price to earnings ratios, dividend cover, all that good stuff. This is what you are paying us for. Yeah. To stop you make 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 get that six percent figure closer to that seven point seven percent figure. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean and then I've seen I mean Barclays Wealth have done some quite good stuff on this on they call it the behaviour and investment gap or the behaviour gap yeah, behaviour investment gap. And they, they cite a figure of somewhere between two and three percent that the typical do-it-yourself retail investor loses relative to what market returns are and those losses are caused by basically buying high and selling low or buying the wrong thing at the wrong time um, I always have a sort of to come back to this point it sort of reminds me of 2006 it's the um, it's the Clapham Junction railway station advertising hoarding message so I distinctly remember when I started my career in 2006 that every single station had the new star property fund as the thing to buy which of course was the total top of the market the property cycle 2011 12 13 it was all about gold natural resources china emerging markets. i i whatsapped you a picture that was the top in of that 20 market. i remember in spring of 21 i whatsapped you a picture of a bus that said if you're only thinking about buying crypto now it's too late yeah and obviously crypto got walloped over the next i mean these so these so you know the, these themes are the sources of this behavior gap of the typical investor versus what they should earn it's just poor behavior and 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 it's human nature and we talk about it quite a lot when things are going wrong and badly and against you you want to do something and very often doing something means bailing out the flip side is when something's going up loads um, you've got massive FOMO fear of missing out so you end up piling in at the wrong time and uh, it, it, it yeah it was it was good reading. Vanguard do this every year, but it, it kind of comes back to the point that actually being invested and being diversified and being sensible, actually making fewer decisions yeah. is more likely to get you better returns and closer to market returns than over trading, chasing the current hot fad and bailing out of the things that have gone wrong. How do you, almost every single analyst who's been on, I've asked, how do you, what's your decision making framework to try and avoid, not mistakes, because everyone makes mistakes, right? But try and minimize the potential i mean i've i've sort of jotted down some lessons from reading this vanguard piece and one of them is decisions are the devil <laughs> yeah the fewer you have to make the more the more likely you are to get a better outcome i suppose but how do, how do you think about it well no it's it, it's it is hard actually um it's probably the single hardest thing you have to do is you get to you get to a a, a juncture and you it's go no go on something you know you've done the work and, and the temptation is always to do a bit more right you, you know you've got your model you've you've done all the excel work you can possibly do you've done all the background reading you've got these stacks of paper in front of you and you're like okay i've got i've got all the information i can reasonably expect to to he's, gather he's, he's been on the tour around the property and the slap up lunch yes. afterwards he's done oh, his due diligence <laughs> the quality of the lunch is a, is a massive factor in any in any sort of investment uh, uh, 
I'm not being serious in case anyone's concerned there, but it's it is you do go to the property and and, yeah. and it, it, it is unusual for me to to want to buy any property company that I haven't uh, you know seen in the flesh. Um, but it it boils down to a moment in time where you have to press the button that says upgrade to buy or maintain at neutral and. Um, it's it's a tough moment, and and I, I will say that in every single time I've ever pressed that button, the next thing I've got I've done is gone. Oh, am I, did I really do that? You know, have, have I? It, it sometimes involves the old swear word, which I won't invoke today. But um, you think was that right? And then you you have to remind yourself, yes, it, I did everything I could. I've I've made the right choice here. Um, on best evidence, I can't promise it's going to necessarily work no. immediately, no. but I do believe it will. Um, but the, the other problem with that decision-making framework in general is if you know, if you put a stock to buy or or you decide that actually don't like it anymore and it comes down to sell, mm. you've got a living, real-time number in front of you all day, every day that tells yeah. you if you're an idiot or if you're not an idiot. Yeah, absolutely. Ollie um, Creasy, not an idiot. From all this, just have it in writing. I'll show, I'll show my mum that. Uh, um, like, yeah, no, but you're. I mean, you're right. I, I don't think a, a working day goes by where I don't have a it's page that looks hard. a lot like the fact that yeah. that you've got open there. And I just look at it and go, well, well, what that company there that I haven't, you know, I haven't necessarily done anything on, but I'm, I know where its share price is. Mm. Um, it's you know I've I've got 30, 40 companies that that are on that page and yeah you, you're right the difference between someone who's employed solely to maintain a view on that subsector versus someone who's trying to do it all around their day job mm. is is quite different. Mm. Yeah. Um, final thing on Vanguard. This really caught my eye. I thought this was super interesting. Uh, this is Vanguard. Interestingly we found larger gaps, so uh, behavioral um, error gaps, if we can call it that. Interestingly, we find larger gaps in areas and styles for which there is robust academic support, like tilting the value smaller company stocks or emerging markets, suggesting that the added volatility these strategies entail cost investors any excess return they might have earned and then some. The same held for more exotic strategies that on paper might push, push a portfolio closer to the efficient frontier, but in real life can find investors into costly mistakes. Mm. Put another way, life does not happen on a spreadsheet. No, no. So, yeah, you're right. So the two things jump out there, the value factor and the smaller company factor. So both academically in the literature, if you have a small tilt to value and a tilt towards smaller companies, generally your returns over time are better. But what they're saying is that actually for investors, they're more likely to mess up if they're going they into can't those stick areas. In the journey. They can't stick it because the journey is very uncomfortable for long periods mm. um, as the last 10-15 years will show it's been a terrible time to be a value investor apart from a brief <laughs> sojourn in 2022 right um, it's, been, it's been awful so anyone mm. who's had a value fund in their portfolio since 2010 I have huge respect for value investors anyone, anyone who's still doing that God, must have a lot of grey hair yeah it's 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 a tough gig um, Trojan letter. I don't know if this is going to be any more positive, to be honest with you. Um, so Troy Trojan, really good, really good letter um, for me to read as much as anything because I'm sort of a, an optimist, biased optimist uh, would be mm. my bias, I suppose. And their portfolio is 10% gold, 32% US treasuries, 20% short dated gilts and 11% short dated US treasuries. So it's never going to be, it's no, never going to be the most optimistic newsletter. Reason. There's a, there's a couple of things in here, and there's some charts related off the back of it. So um, 
The UK's investment trust sector has been absolutely walloped. This is true, and as of the 19th of July, only 22 closed-ended funds out of a total of 367 in the sector were trading on a premium to their net asset value. This compares with 105 trading on a premium in 2021. Do you want to talk us through premiums and discounts and investment trusts, John? Um, yeah, well, I mean, it sort of overlaps with what Ollie does, really. So every investment trust has a bunch of assets in it. It's an, ultimately a company full of assets, and those assets have values, and you, you add them all up, and, you, and then the, the trust in total has a net asset value. The share price trades in the market, often at a divergence to the net asset value. Now, in theory, if um, you know the share price should be pretty close to the, to the, to the value of the assets in the company, otherwise there would be an arbitrage opportunity. But uh, as the chart shows, there are times when investment trusts trade at discounts. Why might an investment trust trade at a discount? Well, maybe investors don't believe the value of the assets in the funds. So mm. whether that was um, office properties in all these sectors or infrastructure or private equity or doesn't matter what, um, then you get these periods where you get these discounts. And and we talk a bit, we've talked a bit about before, before about the, the, the so-called panic euphoria and you know sentiment. And interestingly, investment trust discount premium charts in totality is, is quite a good sentiment indicator. So when trusts are at big discounts, as they are today, that tends to be representative of a market that um, where sentiment is pretty fragile and pretty poor. Um, and that's exactly where we are. And it's, again, you know, it's another kind of, another kind of <clears throat> more evidence of, of interest rates going from naught to five and a half, six percent is causing issues in the investment trust sector is one of those. One of the knock-on impacts of the investment trust sector being beaten up is the FTSE 250 has been beaten up as well because there's quite a high skew yeah. of investment trusts in there, isn't there? Um, you sent these yeah. charts across, John. Basically, the TLDR is the 250 looks quite cheap. Yeah, UK mid and small caps look as cheap as they have done for, as far as the chart, go back 20 years. Um, and typically, small and mid-cap companies tend to grow faster than the largest companies historically. So, therefore, if you can buy them cheaper and they grow faster, you know, you tend to do better over time. Um, yeah, the FTSE mid-cap UK small-cap equities from around 2000 to 2018-17 outgrew the FTSE 100 at a phenomenal rate. Uh, but since then, it's been kind of all the other way. So. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, you might need to wait a while for this to 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 wake up again, but there's there's definitely some value in in small cap. You're, you you have a fairly substantial margin for error built in there at so, those yeah. valuations if the so. world doesn't completely end. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, one one other thing I think I, I picked up on this letter, um, the danger of the the picks and shovels thesis, which is something that feels quite timely at the moment, given what's going on in, in AI and Nvidia in particular. Um, so going talking about the, the dot com bubble, um, this is Trojan, uh, Troy, I should say. Back then, investors coalesced around a small number of telecoms equipment companies, including Cisco, Lucent, Ericsson, Nortel, and Marconi. These stocks would, the story went, benefit from building the infrastructure for the internet boom without investors having to identify the dot com winners. Valuations for these companies reached eye watering levels of 50 to 100 times earnings discounting growth that ultimately failed to materialise as the bubble burst in America headed into recession. I've got a chart on screen here of Cisco going back to November 1996 to the current day. You can see the run up there into the dot-com bubble in 2000. You know, we've talked a, a bit, I think we talked about Microsoft on this as well, John, previously, but you know, Cisco was not a bad business. No. But if you paid too much for it, I mean, it's yeah. still not back to where it was. No, and it fell from, what, 90 bucks to less than 10 bucks over the ensuing two, three years from the peak in 2000. Um, and it was trading on 
50 times sales, 40 times sales, and, it, and yeah, it's, it's funny that the list of names that you mentioned there, you know, half those don't exist anymore, do they? Ericsson, um, Marconi definitely doesn't exist. Um, Never heard of them. No, well, <laughs> um, exactly. So you just you need to be quite careful, don't you, in, in speculative mania that you're not getting kind of drawn in. Comes back to that point earlier about investor behaviour and FOMO. You know, this was a classic FOMO stock in the late nineties. Yeah, it's uh, it's not necessarily pick on Nvidia necessarily. There will no. definitely, definitely, definitely be winners, but the um, you can't sort of say, well, I'm not taking a view on the picks and shovels thesis. Will be competitive. There will be winners and losers within that. So you're not necessarily getting rid of risk by, by going to the infrastructure place. For what it's worth, by the way, the, the valuation on NVIDIA is not as egregious as it was on Cisco in 99, just for the, just for the record. Is it a value stock, John? Uh, Relatively. <laughs> Relative <laughs> to 100 Cisco times earnings. Okay. Um, so final thing. Uh, we wrote in January, again, this is Troy. We wrote in January about stock market participants' insensitivity to valuation after 14 years of historically low interest rates, akin to the proverbial frogs in boiling water. Higher multiples of earnings have become the norm for investors. Mm. Um, I wrote something about this this week. Um, leaning too heavily on historical valuation models can get you into trouble. And the one that I showed as the example was the Shiller-Cape ratio, which is eminently sensible. But if you sold it on the basis of overvaluation back in 2010, 10, 11, 12, yeah. which was screaming overvaluation relative yeah. to history, you've missed out on one of the best decades for US equity market returns sure. ever. Um, so, you know, I, I get the point about valuations, but things change. And I know that's yeah. such a well, you, you, noob you're thing to say. Comparing apples and pears, aren't you? Because if, if you look at the Cape, you know, what did we do in the 70s? Well, we made stuff and we bashed metal and we made widgets, whereas today we make software which, and, and tech and, and lots of other things. So the world has changed and companies are different and therefore value, relying on the same valuation models across industries and across time is probably not very sensible. But valuation is still a good anchor and a pretty good guide for us. It's not something... And I think that the point they're probably trying to make was that if interest rates are naught, paying 20 times earnings for the US equity market might seem fine. But if you can get four and a half, five percent on a US Treasury, where's the incentive? You know, why should the S&P be on 20 times? And that's probably where I kind of lean. It's, it's fine in 2020, 2021, when interest rates are naught to have to buy equities, because as we talked about, in those days, we talked about Tina, there is no alternative, because there was no alternative to equities, because cash was yielding you naught. Today, as we've had the conversations with clients, you know there is an alternative, and you can buy gilts, or you can put your money in the bank and earn a perfectly sensible return. Maybe not, you know, double digits and not brilliant, and we would still expect equities to do well. But um, why should equities be quite so expensive in an environment of higher interest rates? I don't, I don't know. So that's what that's the sort of the conundrum of market at the moment, which, yeah. is what, which is probably to get to the point of what Troy are trying to say. This this chart rather embarrassingly I've put the wrong acronym up. It should be TINA rather than TINA. Mm. Um, but anyway, yeah. uh, if you'd have shown me this chart two years ago, I'd have, I'd have gone, what on earth has happened? Mm. Because this is showing green bars, uh, yields available from corporate bonds in every market globally apart from Japan are now higher than dividend yields. Yeah. Um, which is night and day from where we were a couple of years ago, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Dividend yields were much higher relative to bond yields and 
that's because interest rates have gone up and that's what the world continues to grapple with and ultimately you know whether it's the property world or the wider stock market or crypto or residential property it doesn't really matter interest yeah. rates are the, are the kind of main driver on that what, what do you think about rates that's a big question uh, I it, know. It, it, it's it, my what? finishing salvo so it's, I thought uh, I'd go for the throat I mean the, I don't have that much to think about them except that it's 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 caused the property world a lot of a lot of grief um, but that I think well certainly my world has been more or less rational about it um, you have as, as Jonathan said you've got a a higher risk free you've got a, a new paradigm to, to work within um, values have to change I, I actually the, the strangest thing for me is the fact that residential prices haven't moved mm. right that that is the I, and i and i can construct an argument why they haven't or why they sh maybe shouldn't but i still don't think it's entirely correct um you know if if a dispassionate commercial property buyer mm -hmm. decides that his property or her property has to be worth 20 percent less then why does that argument not apply to well to any other asset class mm. ultimately that's valued off of its income mm -hmm. Including some residential property, mm. it's a, it's a, it's it's common. Th this I imagine he watches the Sioux. This is a direct appeal to Andrew Bailey. Please stop putting interest rates up. My tracker mortgage is becoming eye watering. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think the big takeaway is that Ollie Creasy sees UK residential property down twenty percent. I mean that's what we've got to that's what we've that's got to call the pod like, this week. Yeah. Like nothing gets people going like property don't, market don't, bear. Don't do that to me. I'll be getting death threats. <laughs> on, on X it won't ever thing. get that bad. The Bank of England and the government have shown time and again that they will backstop the property sure. market. I, I, well, I, I do agree with that. Um, Maybe that's very. I, I mean, I could play that back to me in a year, and it's absolute <laughs> carnage out there. I but but actually, it's also not a rational market, and mm. I, I mean that respectfully. I don't mean it's it's. Run by people who are themselves irrational, but the decisions they're making are not solely financial. No, they're mm -hmm. not done in a spreadsheet in the way that industrial is. Exactly. Right. Yeah, you know, you're thinking about your kids' schools and and how you need a new a third bedroom for your home office or, or whatever it is that's that's driving your decision to buy or sell a home. Um, and yeah, the mortgage rate is one of the factors, but it's far from the only one. Mm. Mm. Um, I always admire your decor choices when you're on when you're on Zoom. Well, Is that Mrs. Crazy? Those or? are my wife's decor choices. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. But it's I mean I deserve the credit for for not interfering. I think you know knowing <laughs> yes. knowing where my expertise. That lies. brings us nice full circle. Decisions are the devil. <laughs> Don't get involved. No, um, Ollie, thank you so much, my friend. That was great fun. Uh, thanks for having me, um, Johnny. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us, folks. We'll see you in a couple of weeks when we've got Husey back, I think, if he mm. decides to come back. Um, if you've got any questions, give me a shout on david.henry at culturechaviot.com. Thanks very much.